Hello, well-being friends. Welcome to the Path to Well-Being in Law podcast, an initiative of the Institute for Well-Being in Law. I'm your co-host, Chris Newbold, Executive Vice President of Alps Mal- Malpractice Insurance. And boy, how exciting is it that we're actually moving into the summer months? I always feel like well-being kind of takes a, a natural uh, elevated state in the in the summer months. And and uh, you know we're, we're we're also coming off of a, a really exciting well-being and law week. And I'm joined by my co-host Bree Buchanan. Bree, I'd, I'd just love to hear your reflections on uh, again a, a a May event that's really become a foundational element in the well-being uh, 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 horizon uh, as we as we think about you know bringing people together and, and shining a light on well-being. What were your reflections on this year's well-being week in law? Yeah. Good morning. Hey, Chris. And so that was just, it's such an amazing event and it's really become a signature event for the Institute for Wellbeing and Law. And this is our second year to do it. And, um, you know, we didn't necessarily have people sign up, but we were able to look at things like the, the analytics, the, the people coming to our website, all of that doubled over last year. Um, we had so much energy and excitement around that and many people involved. We had the actual, the whole week for the Wellbeing Week in Law, everyday programming. And then this year we added the after party, which um, two weeks later, we did another full week of programming around the different dimensions of well-being for the professionals in the space, the people who are tasked with, uh, with law firms, with um, you know, coming up with well-being programming, and that's really um, an area that the institute is focused on in supporting the movement and all the people that are out there um, that are part of this movement. So it was a great event. What did you think? Yeah, I thought it was, it was fantastic. Again, one one of our goals on the podcast is to build and nurture a national network of well-being advocates. I I, I think. Uh, I, I think one of the, the great uh, results of the week was just, you know, again, a mobilization of army, uh, mobilization of an army of folks who are really interested in this particular issue. And, uh, and it's, you know, we, we would be remiss without recognizing one of our colleagues, Bree uh, Ann Bradford, and all of the work that she did to, to really both initiate and, and has really been building some significant momentum uh, in, in building this community through events like Wellbeing Week in Law. Absolutely. The community and just the partnerships that she's helping us create is really valuable. Yeah, I think our I think our the the folks interested in receiving mailing mailings and, and communications from the institute, I think went up to like 1400, right? It, again, just a, a testament to the number of folks who are really passionate about this issue and wanting to see it remain at the forefront as we as we look to improve the profession. So so that's awesome, and and uh, and let's let's move into our our podcast today. We're we're again super excited. We've taken a little bit of a pivot uh, in our in our first you know ten to twelve fifteen uh, podcast. We really focused on some individuals in the movement. We've been moving to a little bit of a of a mini series format. We started with law schools, and now we're really excited to delve into the intersection of well being and and research and research into the well being cause. There's you know, there, there's, there's been, uh, you know, in a lot of professions, probably a lot more empirical research. Uh, we certainly are, are, are moving into that space in terms of specifically looking at lawyers, research, well-being, happiness. And, 
you know, I know, Bree, we are super excited about our guest today, who's going to kind of kick off our, our research uh, mini series. Uh, Larry uh, Krieger from, from Florida State University. Uh, Bree, I know that you, you've known Larry for a lot of years. I'm going to give you the honors of introducing uh, Larry, but we are really excited about our podcast today and the intersection of, 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 uh, of well-being and the happiness of lawyers, which is, again, something <laughs> I've been really excited to, to, uh, to, to get into. Right. And I am delighted. Larry is um, such um, somebody I've looked up to and looked to as such a, a real expert in this space Every, ever since I started working in this area, which was um, 2009. And um, so let me just give everybody an introduction. Professor Larry Krieger is a widely recognized expert on lawyer well-being. And particularly, I think he's known for his study and work around what makes lawyers happy. And we'll get to, to hear more about that. But the, the, that study in particular was research on 6,200 lawyers. And that identified the specific factors that are required for lawyer wellness and satisfaction and basically happiness. Um, the New York Times report uh, article on that study was the most shared article in that uh, in the Times for the following two days. So a lot of buzz about that when it came out in 2015. Larry was the founding chair of the section on balance and legal e education for the Association of American Law Schools. He was a litigator for 11 years, so he knows what it's like to be in the trenches. Uh, and part of that was chief trial counsel for the F Florida Controller. And he now teaches litigation skills and professionalism at the Florida State University College of Law. And he is rightly so recognized as one of the 25 teachers in the um, Harvard Press book entitled, What the Best Law Teachers Do. And finally, um, I got to meet um, Larry in person when I presented to him in 2018, the Colap Meritorious Service Award, which is given really for a lifetime distinction in the work that addresses mental health and substance abuse issues in the profession. So that is just, a, that is a small um, introduction for what uh, all that Larry has done in this space. But so Larry, welcome, and we're so glad you're here. Um, I wanna ask you a question of what we ask for all of our guests. Uh, we start off with asking what brought you to the well-being movement? And for, we've found that just about for all of our guests and certainly for all of us who are involved in the Institute, there's some sort of personal life experience, something that drives our passion for this work. So what, what can you tell us about your experience? And welcome, Larry. Well, first, thank you so much. It really is a pleasure and an honor to, to get to talk to you both. And thank you for the, the amazing work that you both are doing and, and all the people out there. So, wow, funny story. So what brought me to it was my first wife, um, who way back then, she had actually been dating uh, Mike Love, the, the lead singer for the Beach Boys, when, when the Beach Boys learned meditation okay. from uh, Marshi Mahesh Yogi back in the late 60s or something. So we're going back a little ways here. Okay. I'm, I've been around. Um, <laughs> and so I was in law school at the time. Actually, I was miserable. And um, we heard that this uh, meditation teacher, transcendental meditation at the time was, was coming to town and she said, oh, let's go. And I said, eh. 
And so she dragged me in there. I thought it was the stupidest thing I ever heard. Uh, we walked out. She was glowing like, this is fabulous. I thought, well, brother. You know, and they wanted 35 bucks, you know, for you to learn this technique. I thought this is for the birds. So she learned it. And uh, she changed within two weeks. She, <laughs> she was a different person. Wow. So I said, okay, I want to learn it too. Then it took me yeah. months to get into it because the teacher didn't come back for three months. So, so it was just really good luck. You know, I kind of transcended my own ignorance, honestly. And, um, and then I, you know, I was unhappy in law school then. I was, and I actually quit law school. It took me eight years to get through law school, which I love telling students when they're discouraged. Right. I just didn't like it. And the reason I didn't like it is everybody there was so unhappy. I had already been uh, in the Air Force uh, through the Vietnam War. And, you know, I was a little older and stuff going to law school. And I thought, everybody is so serious. Oh, my God. Nobody's got their legs shot off. Nobody, you know. <laughs> right. And I just kept quitting law school because I just didn't like being around. It was like so serious and, and negative. And so, you know, that was on me. I've learned to have better boundaries, but that's how I got involved. Then when I finally became a lawyer, I noticed how unhappy the lawyers were. Right. Go, Come on, guys. Even the super uh, successful ones were just, just ramped up, tense, pushy, on edge all the time. And of course, by then I'd been meditating for a while. And so I, it was keeping me kind of chilled out. And I was prosecuting in West Palm. We had the sixth highest crime rate in the country at the time. So it's not like it was, I was, you know, dodging the bullets and avoiding the trenches, like you say, but it just, you know, do your job and then go home and, and have a nice life. So that's what, what got me involved was good luck, certainly not my own intelligence. And then just seeing what was going on in front of me. Right. Right. Absolutely. Well, Larry, you've, you've certainly, you know, when you look back on your research and scholarship, it now goes back, you know, you know, almost 20 years. Right. And, and, and I know that you've been thinking about it even longer than that. You, in some respects, you've been a, a disruptor in our space before it was even a thing. Right. And if you look back on some of your titles, I just kind of, I, I kind of marvel at the fact that you, you saw so much of this so early that even though the movement is where it is today, you know, again, you were talking about it two decades ago. Some of your titles included Institutional Denial About the Dark Side of Law. And I think that was published in 2002. Understanding the Negative Effects of Legal Education on Law Students. Again, 2002. Uh, Does Legal Education Have Undermining Effects on Law Students? Uh, 2004. What were you seeing among your students that brought you to engage in this type of research and scholarship? Yeah, thanks. You know, uh, let me just say, I'll say, just like me starting meditation and getting a bigger picture on life than what I had up to that point. I mean, I got lucky and got this job. I wasn't looking for a job. I had that marvelous job of chasing Ponzi schemes out of the state of Florida for the state comptroller, like Bree already mentioned. But I just got lucky and kind of got into this job and um, through happenstance. And it gave me time to start thinking. And what I saw immediately was, I think I started this job in 90, 91. I just passed 30 years. Yeah. <laughs> Had a little lunch with the Dean and it was really sweet. Um, but, uh, you know, so it was a good ways after I had uh, been 
in law school all those years and seeing all the unhappiness there. And when I got into teaching, I realized nothing has changed. Nothing. And I thought, okay, well, I've got some time here. I'm going to try to write about it. And actually, the first article I wrote was in 99. Uh, before, And I'm not on tenure track, so writing all that negative stuff is a little tricky for me. But I figured, honestly, what the hell? You know, I wouldn't mind going back to being a prosecutor or a lawyer. If they don't like me, they can just get rid of me. But, um, you know, I'm not going to keep my mouth shut. So, but the first one I wrote was in 99 and it was called um, What We're Not Telling Law Students and Lawyers That They Really Need to Know. And it was really in that article, I was just going from my experience, but it, I was kind of saying we really need to research this. And, um, and then uh, shortly after that, just again through happenstance, I ran into a, a fabulous uh, empirical psychologist who was willing to work with me, Ken Sheldon. So off we went. There you go. Yeah, I really relate to what you're saying. I graduated from law school in 1989 and then had the opportunity about 15 years later to go back and lead a clinical program there. And it was the same thing. I saw you know, students were still unhappy, stressed out, everything happened around a keg, you know, alcohol flowed through every event. Um, and then actually, when I got to the lawyer's assistance program and went back to law schools, talking 10 years or so years later, it was the same thing. There just hadn't been any shift. Um, I want to touch you a little bit, Larry, you know, my experience with you, my first uh, Larry Krieger encounter. When I started working at the Texas Lawyers Assistance Program in 2009, I came across your booklet that spoke to me so loudly. It was the Hidden Sources of Law School Stress, in which you openly wrote about the dark side of the law school experience. And it, and it just rang so true for me. I was so impacted by that. And tell me what it was like during that period of time to write about these things. It's like, you know, sort of the emperor has no clothes. You were going out proclaiming um, just the seeing true to the heart of the matter and the profession. And how was that received? Uh, well, <laughs> good question. Um, yeah, that book's been a thrill for me. I mean, it turned out that half the law, law schools in the country and also in the in Australia and Canada, more than half of them have used that book with their students in bulk. So that was a thrill. And I am gonna, I'm writing a new one now, I'll explain why I decided to take a new tack, but hopefully that'll be out at the end of the summer for fall students if I'm lucky. Uh, but, you know, um, the first thing I started doing before I wrote that is I, I started talking to clinical conferences because I'm a clinical teacher, I teach litigation skills. And every time I would give a talk on this well-being, I never saw any other talks on it. It's mm -hmm. such a so wonderful to see the, the movement now. When I when I started doing this, you know, it was it was weird, uh, but <laughs> but but the rooms would always fill up. There were so many teachers that would say, "This is so important. I wish I'd have heard this when I was in law school." And I would say, "I wish I'd have heard it in law school." Me too. You know, right. And so somebody needed to start saying it. So, you know, that was really good. And then, um, then our Dean of Students asked me to give a talk to, uh, to an early orientation group uh, one summer here that came, you know, pre 
1L Law School and I gave this little talk and it, it really went well. They, you know, what I did is I, and this is where the booklet came from. I asked them, so what are you worried about? Let's list everything you're worried about on the, on the board, everything you're afraid of. And then we're going to shoot it all down one at a time. Mm -hmm. So they listed on the board. I explained why they shouldn't stress about it. And then I realized, I woke up the next morning. I realized, you know, that was really a lot of good things. And it all came from them. I thought I had to write this down. So I sent out a little summary to this listserv that I had started by then on humanizing legal education. And people wrote back and said, oh, can I use it? Can I use it? Can I use it? And I thought, okay, I got to put this into a, a publication. So I was already getting a lot of positive feedback from my community, which was the community of people who actually care about the well-being and happiness of insanity, really, of law students and lawyers. So, and I, I've learned to focus on the people that are supportive. I just don't focus on the other people. <laughs> That's what helps. Yeah. Words of wisdom. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, Larry, the the obviously we're shifting a little bit in the podcast here to a, a three-part series focusing on on research and uh, we, we just would we really enjoy focusing now on your uh, your 2015 seminal work that really helped set the stage for the entire well-being movement the your 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 work what makes lawyers happy a data-driven prescription to redefine professional success uh, was you know really at the at the forefront and it was a large research project that you conducted with with Ken Sheldon tell us tell us about the survey what inspired you to do it, you know, who you surveyed, uh, just kind of setting the stage for what you ultimately found. Sure. Thanks, Chris. Yeah, that that, that came out so well, too. I was shocked at how well, you, you know, after we published that, like I had a lot of people from different journals and the press and this and that asked me if there were any surprises in there. And really, the, the main surprise was that we were right. You know, everything we predicted, <laughs> everything that we predicted came out and even stronger than I would have imagined. I, right. I, I really encourage folks who are listening to this, um, take a look at this study because there's a graph in there of the results and you can see it in a picture. It, it's so striking. Um, it's on SSRN, Social Science Research Network, SSRN.com. It's called What Makes Lawyers Happy. But, but what came out of it was that success does not make lawyers happy. That's why the New York Times got, had such a buzz with it. Right. Um, we were actually able to quantify exactly what's making lawyers happy. And we were able to show with numbers, it's not the money, it's not the partnership, the junior partners were not any happier than the senior associates in the big firms, not even a bit, even though they were making 70% more money and they were partners now, nothing changed. So, um, you know, where it, the idea came from because we started researching law students before that and we were in some of those journals you mentioned with the institutional denial and understanding the negative effects, all that business. And I wanted to be sure that what we found in law students actually was going in the direction that those studies predicted and that lawyers were suffering from the same exact problems. And so it really took seven years to get that study done because I had to get bar associations. We got actually got five state bar associations agreed to participate and put their uh, bar members uh, through this survey. We, I got CLE 
credit assigned to the lawyers who were willing to do it because it was a long survey. And so, uh, and then one of the, one of the um, states backed out at the last minute, a really big one. So otherwise we'd have had 10,000 lawyers instead of 6,000, but results would have been identical. But I think they thought it's going to be too hot politically. I think they were afraid that we were going to show what we ended up showing, which is everything that the profession thinks is important actually isn't important other than helping clients and everything that the profession thinks isn't important, like spending time with your family and taking care of yourself actually is important, you know, and those are the things going to make you happy. Yeah. So <laughs> it took years to get that research in, but, but we pulled it off. Yeah, and I see it was just sort of the findings are just a bombshell findings for me. I actually printed out and I'm looking right now at that graph and it is it is so incredibly demonstrative when you're looking at what really moves the dial on subjective well-being or happiness are things like autonomy, relatedness, uh, internal motivation, the intrinsic values. And then you see, so those are, those are long bars on the graph. And then you get to income, uh, class rank, making partner, law review, and the, the, the bars on that graph drop by like 75% or something. It is just striking visually to see this. Can you talk just briefly a little bit about this divide between the extrinsic and intrinsic values sort of digging into the, the secret of of happiness. Yeah, great point. Thanks for bringing that up. And I'm actually looking at it. I, I did a follow-up booklet to that hidden sources of law school stress that extended out to lawyers too after this study came out. And I have a few of those left. I'm trying not to sell them much anymore. And I'll tell you why at the end here. But it also has that chart in it. And it, it's, it's, it's called the hidden stresses of law school and law practice because they really are hidden stresses. Their misassumptions. What these bars mean um, is basically that the human connections that we make, if I could put it in a nutshell, the human connections that we make are everything for the happiness of a lawyer or a judge. They are everything. And by what these bars stand for is our connection to ourself, autonomy, Really, the way we measure it is integrity or authenticity. It's are you a whole person? Are you true to what you say? Do you follow your own values or are you, you know, two-faced? Sort of the negative stereotype of lawyers would be anti-autonomy. That's an anti-integrity. So that's the number one factor. Are you well connected with yourself? And, and who is in, in modern society? What is ourself? Even we don't think that. And then the next one's obvious relatedness to other people. Are you closely connected with other people? Not are you around them? Not do you tell them what to do? But do you feel a close, intimate connection with them? The third one and the fourth one have to do with work. Or do you feel competent at your work? And are you motivated to do your work because you care about it? In other words, is, are you connected to it? Not just are you doing it to pay the bills, but does it give you meaning and purpose in your life? Does it give you joy? So those are the top four. And then autonomy support is a relationship to supervisors. So those are the things. They're way up there as far as predicting well-being. If you don't have those, you're not going to be happy. Right. These, these, these 
numbers are so huge. And then when you get down to made partner, like I said, <laughs> it's a 0. 0.00. Had no effect on the lawyers at all. Being on law review, what, what all the law students get the most depressed about, 0. 0.00 yeah. for the lawyers had no effect. And income is very modest. It's a 0.19. These others are 0.65. I mean, you just turned it all on its head, Larry. And if it, I would first, when I would see these, I would think I, I would question the validity of the study almost because it's so striking against what we're taught and inculcated to believe, but it's, you know, a huge um, a set of people that you surveyed. So I'm, I'm a believer and it also resonates with me. There's what we've been told, but it resonates with me because it's my lived experience. I believe it because that's what I experienced is true, what you found, so anyway. You know, and if you look at, yeah, thanks for that. If you look at uh, scriptures for since time began in any culture, whatever, they all say the same thing, right? right? Yeah. You know, uh, all, all, the mu all the music that sells tons and all the movies that are so popular, it's all about love, not yeah. money, you yeah. know, and so, and we actually did a factor analysis. Again, I got lucky. My, my brother's a, 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 a math genius, a PhD type neuroscience person. And when he saw these results, he said, oh, you should do a factor analysis. I said, what's a factor analysis? He said, well, ten, tell Ken Sheldon, he'll know. You can see I've been led by the nose you know, all the way through my life in this. So we did a factor analysis, which in a nutshell, looks at all these top factors for well-being, and what my brother said, and it turned out to be true, is those are so big and so close in numbers that it's gonna turn out that they're really saying the same thing. They're not actually five different things. They're gonna be one. One thing that's more fundamental. And so Ken Sheldon, it took him five minutes when I emailed him there. He said, yeah, he's right. There is one thing here that's accounting for most of this variability in all of them, he said, you know, good luck. Now you have to figure out what it is. You know, I'm just a psychologist. You're the lawyer because Matthew won't tell you that. And over the years, I did, I think, figure it out. And I've already explained it to you. It's a feeling of connectedness. Yeah. I, I tried to think, what is it that makes me feel good when I tell the truth or when I do what I think is important to me or when I hug someone, you know, or when I do work that matters or when I look at a sunset and I feel joy. What is it that they all have in common? It's feeling connected to life, mm -hmm. more life. And so I think that's the key to everything going forward, you know, uh, is, is how do we get lawyers to think bigger, make the box bigger? Because the box we grew up with that we assumed was going to work does not work. This research shows it so clearly with numbers. We have to get outside that box and think bigger for ourselves. Yeah. Larry, you, you've obviously studied this in the context of, of, of lawyers, but I just, it's hard not to think about this and say, you know, what you've learned about lawyers is really the fact that we are human beings before we are lawyers. And if we take care of, of, of ourselves and the relationship and the connectedness, you know, in, in your study, you talk about what a profile of a happy lawyer is. You could probably replace that with a profile of what a happy person is. It's going to be equally applicable. No question. And, you know, uh, and actually that's how we, we um, set up the study is we had all these hypotheses based on research on, quote, normal people or regular people, not lawyers. 
you know, and that's how we had set up our studies of law students to start with, is using the self-determination theory, which had never really been tested on lawyers. And so, and that's what I meant when I said, I was just surprised how well it, it all bore out. I mean, these numbers are enormous uh, correlations with happiness for each of these factors is like two thirds of a perfect correlation. If you have any one of those five, you're way up there already. But if you're missing any one of the five, you're really missing a lot. So yeah, actually toward the end of the study uh, itself, again on SSRN.com, we I talk about how lawyers are normal people. This, this is exactly what we would get with normal people. I think that I, I, I got to say, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit proud about this study because I don't think there's another one that quantifies it like this. Mm-hmm. This was a kind of another bold step. It, once we were getting these results, I asked Ken, I said, so is there any way we can actually measure these out not just in it with p-values, which is a probability, uh, because they were all highly significant, so they all look the same, but to show which ones are the strongest. He said, yeah, there's these Pearson correlations, these standardized correlations. So he sent me some articles to read about that. And I said, let's do that. And that's, that's how you actually get these numbers, because you can't really compare, Brie, you mentioned, you can't really compare how much money you make with how close you feel to your children, right? They're on two different scales. One's in dollars and one is in subjective warm and fuzzy feelings. And so we were able to do those comparisons and show, for example, that, you know, uh, earning more money is a 0.19 correlation with happiness, whereas being having integrity, what we're always pushing lawyers about, is a 0.66 you know, it's, it's a three and a half times as strong. We had to do that with the mathematical conversion into standard. So, so he was able to do that. And like you said, Bree, I, I expected to get just hammered once this study came out by people saying, this is garbage and this, your, your, your methodology is garbage and this and that. Haven't had a single complain about it. Uh, I think partly because every single thing we looked at in the study, and there's probably 50 or 60 correlations in here that people will be interested in, like, what about having children? What about being in in a married or long-term relationship? How many, what about how many vacation days you take, right? What about how big a city you live in? What about the rank of your law school? How do, you know, we're able to compare all those and everything came out consistently. So each of the findings sort of confirmed each of the other findings. Right. Yeah. Well, let's, uh, Larry, first of all, you should be proud of your study. And, and again, I think it was more ultimately reaffirming than, than, than anything else of what many of us suspected. So, hey, let's, this is a good time to take a quick break. And uh, we, we certainly want to come back after the break and talk about implications of the study, some advice that you have, and then kind of where you're going on the, on the research front from here. So let's take a, a short break and uh, we'll be right back. Your law firm is worth protecting. And so is your time. Alps has the quickest online application for legal malpractice insurance out there. Apply, see rates, and find coverage, all in about 20 minutes. Being a lawyer is hard. Our new online app is easy. Apply now at apply online 
www.alpsnet.com. Okay, welcome back to the, the podcast. We have uh, Larry Krieger uh, here who uh, published a seminal study on what makes lawyers happy. Um, Larry, I, I'm curious, you know, if, if, if you had a, an audience of, of a group of big law CEOs, HR officers, you know, as, as you're, as, as, based on what you've learned, what words of advice would you give to them about, about having and nurturing successful lawyers? Because obviously successful lawyers are the key to a successful firm and, and are the, I think the foundation of ultimately serving society as, as problem solvers. What, what advice would you have? Yeah, it'd probably be what I'm telling you to. I mean, you're CEOs of your organization <laughs> and, and you know, about that being proud of the study. I, I, I'm really smiling here. So big while I'm talking to you all, because I'm really happy that it came out the way it did. I mean, it's wonderful because I think it's helpful for people if they take a look at it. What, I, what I've already kind of intimated what I would want to tell people is we have to think bigger. I mean, look, when I went to law school, this all kind of started for me. And I guess I, I was somewhat instrumental in getting it, it going in other circles and in, in legal education in particular. It started for me because I came from with a different perspective. Okay, I came from outside the legal perspective. I had gone to college, I'd gone into the military, I'd seen some serious life-threatening situations and some, some soldiers who didn't make it that I was transporting here and there. You know, I lived in different countries. I taught, I not only took meditation, but I actually taught meditation, you know. And so I came with an with a outside-the-box perspective. Then when I came to law school, I thought, oh, this box is too small. We have to think bigger. People are not coming to law school expecting to be happy. Mm. You've got to think bigger about your life. It was like a, uh, like a merit badge to be so stressed and stay up and be studying and having big circles under your eyes. I thought, you know, I don't even want to be around this. This, this is just bad thinking. And so I would tell the more powerful you are, uh, the more you know what it takes to be happy, usually. Now, that may not be true in our political system anymore. Those people are not happy. I don't care what party you're in. Um, but, you know, as you become more successful, you should be becoming more happy. If you're not happy, you're not successful. Uh, there, there are great quotes from great philosophers that happiness is the highest form of success. And that has to be true. So first of all, I would tell CEOs and I also tell law students the same thing. The highest form of success you can have is to really be deeply, consistently happy. And if something sad ha happens, be sad, be in touch with your feelings. Everything you're doing, you went to law school, why? To become happy, you're making money, why? To make you happy, you got married, why? So you'd be happy. You had children, why, right? You're gonna retire, why? You'll be happier. Everything is for that, but we put it aside and get lost in the details. Yeah. Yeah. I wanna ask you um, about your current research and we'll make sure we have time to talk about that. You, it's, you had told us, it sounds like you're, you're doing a bit of a pivot. So in, in your focus, tell us about that. Yeah, so 
you know, I think that the research is so helpful. It, it will challenge people because they may think, oh my gosh, I've spent all my time doing this and now I need to shift. You just need to make an internal shift. Keep doing what you're doing because you're good at it, but stop thinking that winning or being the greatest is going to make you happy. Just keep doing it because you're good at it and you're competent at it and you can help people. That will make you happy. Yeah. Um, so it's this connectedness to self, to others, and to purpose that shows up in the study as being so strong for making people happy. And if you don't have it, you're simply not going to be happy. That, that's what these numbers mean. So once we get there and we accept that, then I started thinking, well, how can I really teach my litigation students? Because they're stressed out. They're trying to learn, you know, all this high pressure stuff, and they're going to lose lots of cases, just like I did. And I need to get them ready for that. And so I started thinking, well, what's the most important connection that we could have? And it comes right from that factor analysis. It's really our connection to life, right? Our connection to life. Like I, when, when we first got this research and then the analysis, I thought, well, what's the difference between me feeling well-connected to you and caring about you guys and the difference with me making lots of money and feeling well connected to my money. Why, why isn't that so satisfying? And the answer is there's no life in it. There's no life in it. And I, I, I mentioned this to my minister, my little church I go to, and he told me this great quote from Thomas Merton, that love is an intensification of life. Love is an intensification of life, a wholeness. I looked it up and I realized, yeah, that's what's making these lawyers happy. They're connecting with their own self, which is life. They're connecting with the life of other people that they care about. So life is connecting to life and reverberating back and forth. In my slideshows, in my PowerPoints, I use an image of a power cord that's plugging in at both ends and you see the electricity going, that's, that's our life. So the more you plug into life and connect to it, the happier you're going to be. So there's also, so that's one big piece of it. I'm trying to actually get Ken to do another study with me on spirituality and religion, showing that people who feel connected to whatever they believe might be God or a higher authority or this or that, if they feel connected and close to it, they're happier people than if they feel a fear of it or like it's judgmental and this and that. So, so far I haven't got them there, but I will, I'll, I'll keep after them. But I think there's another area of science now that's so important for lawyers, which is um, kind of the old power of positive thinking from the 1950s, Norman Vincent Peale, but it's turning out to be scientifically really true epigenetics, neuroscience, neurobiology, biochemistry. Uh, there's a huge body of science now that when you think positively, you feel good. And when you think negatively or you have a negative belief, you feel bad. You can think of the optimism in pessimism research. Same thing. Optimist is just somebody with a mindset that everything is good, even if it sucks. You know, I got a flat tire. Well, that sucks, but, uh, you know, I'll go have a cup of coffee. I got AAA. I'm, I'm lucky. I'll call AAA. I'll call and tell them I'm going to be late, and they're fine. Whereas a pessimist has 
the same flat tire, but has a different mindset and decides now life sucks. Not just this sucks, but life sucks, I suck, and it's never going to get better, right? right? So the, it's the exact same flat tire. It's the exact same client that got convicted of a DUI or lost custody or got custody, whatever it is. But people frame it in different ways. And the way they frame it makes about a 2,000 uh, point difference in your biochemistry. 2,000 different uh, chemicals in your brain and your body, depending on if you have a positive thought or a negative thought. And then that structures how you feel, how you work, how much inflammation you have, whether you're depressed, whether you age or stay young, and whether you get the raise and the promotion or not, because people actually like being around you and so forth. So I'm really pushing that now that people, we need to basically, we have two big things we need to do. First of it, well, we need to locate our life and we need to connect to it. Of course, there's a lot of mindfulness and meditation stuff, but that first re research shows how important it is to find life in, in what you're doing. If it doesn't have life, don't do it. Mm. Turn to what does. And then both inside and outside. And then the second thing is manage your thoughts proactively. We're so smart, but we have a tendency to think negatively. You know, law is a pessimistic way of thinking what can go wrong. Right. Right. And so I'm really uh, coming around and I'm going to write a paper on this. It's coming pretty soon about, first of all, work-life balance real quick. I'll spend just a minute on each of these because I know we're getting close on our time. Work-life balance is great. I don't think it's worked. And the reason it hasn't worked is because nobody's, finding life hmm. we're wow. saying we shouldn't be working all the time let's have more life but nobody really understands what life is it's not going out on the golf course and getting aggravated you know wow. uh it's not spending lots of time drinking uh you know that's not life it's like you have to find your life and then you have to express it to other people and you have to find it in them and let them express it to you so it really involves going deeper inside taking care of your health and being mindful and finding life. So, I, so I've been teaching law students and others just simple meditation practices to do that. And then the second key thing is manage your thoughts proactively. You know, the other sort of talisman we have besides work-life balance uh, that I think um, is not working well is stress management. Mm -hmm. Stress management is way better than stress mismanagement or unmanagement, right? But stress management as a talisman presumes we're gonna be stressed. Why do we have to be stressed? That's, to me, that's dumb thinking. You've got to think bigger than that. And I actually did, just did a survey with, with just a random one, no IRB approval, abuse is not gonna be published, just to prove the point. And I want Ken to research this with me as well. I, I, I sampled a bunch of law students, one, two, and three L's, just asking them, uh, what did you think law school would be like? That's all. Give me one word. What did you think law school would be like before you started? And what do you think law practice will be like now? One or two words. So they had no bias many. And 70% of them said stress, burnout, anxiety, okay? 
that's the mindset even coming into law school. Right. Yeah. And what this new research says, if that's what you expect, that is what you'll get. In other words, when you get a big assignment, now it's all about I'm so stressed. I was telling my wife this morning, and then I'll close here. You know, I'm going to get to talk to Bree and Chris today and hopefully some lawyers. You know, I could be all stressed about this. I have so much work to do. I don't have time. Da, 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 da. Uh, blah, 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 blah. Or I say, this is a wonderful opportunity. It's going to be the same talk either way. What you think it's going to be determines those thousand positive or thousand negative chemicals flushing through your body and your brain for the rest of the day. So we have to learn to be positive about it. And so we got to get rid of stress management. I would call it thought management, belief management. And just stop looking at the hours of stress. One other quick note. Uh, one of the, uh, we do have a study that's going to probably be published in about six months. We're just submitting it in the next week or so. that shows that it's not actually the long hours that's making lawyers unhappy. It's not the long hours. It's the wrong work. People who like their work, they work more hours. They actually enjoy it. And the people who don't like their work, when they, they, they don't, they're just as unhappy whether they're working long hours or not. So we need to shift our focus on to find life inside yourself, embrace it, be grateful for it, connect to others, share your life, and think bigger. Expect to be happy. Don't expect to be stressed. Because if you expect to be happy and start every day like that, you're going to be happy. Is garbage going to come up? Sure. People come to you because you're a lawyer. They have problems if you're in that kind of practice. Well, okay. So let's help them with their problems as much as we can. And then let's go home happy. If we didn't fix them, you know, it wasn't our problem. It was their problem. So we have to have that boundary there and appreciate ourselves. Larry, thank you so much. It's such a joy to hear, hear you speak and your point of view when you're um, thinking about these things. Um, it, and, it, and again, going back to it really just confirms, I think what, what I know and what we all know in our gut, in our heart about what it makes life worth living. And so um, thank you for that. And, and it's a bit revolutionary um, and we need you right now. We need thought leaders like you. And so I'm, I'm really excited to hear and read your, your um, studies that are coming out. I commend to everybody and I'm going to, we'll make sure that there's a link in the transcript of our podcast, but do take a look at um, the study, What Makes Lawyers Happy? A Data-Driven Prescription to Redefine Professional Success. Again, it is really the work that um, kicked the, the current well-being movement off and launched many other research projects that came from that. And I've always thought that it is not, you know, I think our uh, listeners can hear that you are um, not ego-based, you're a humble man. And so there was not a lot of promotion of this study. And I'm really felt passionate about that in kicking off this series on research in this area, we had to start with you because you are the, the godfather <laughs> of this area, Larry. So thank you so much. Um, and we will be back in the next couple of weeks with other uh, researchers to, to shed light on what is the sort of the cutting edge thinking in this area. 
Chris, thank you too for being here today and um, take care everyone. We'll, we'll talk to you very soon.